You're listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network on BingeMedia.net. And now, the Binge Aftertaste. Everything extraordinary can be explained away, and yet it is true. Everything we will see and do will have a basis in science, but it will have limits. This is the real world, not a cartoon. And yet some of us don't die from bullets. Some of us can still bend steel. That is not a fantasy. If you really think you can get us all out, then you may meet the beast. But for your sake, I hope he likes you. Tomorrow night. What do we call you, sir? First name, Mister. Last name, Glass. Welcome to this review of Glass. Part of the Binge Movie Aftertaste M. Night Shyamalan Retrospective. No way! You tried so hard to get away from us and now you come back and see us? Join Garrett. What if he is just unwell? Matt. Everybody's gonna tell you that I got a big mouth though. I spoiled the end of movies. Ain't true. And the returning Mike Ganeri. Uh, so what's your superpower? Your, your mind? As they look at the entire span of Shyamalan's work. This is gonna get so many views. From that little known e-weekly emission, The Sixth Sense all the way through his new release Old coming out July 23rd. The boys look at all the signs of what makes Shyamalan possess one of the most fascinating careers in the history of Hollywood. It's an internet guy. He's a butcher who salts his meat in an elaborate way. Why did Shyamalan become the black sheep and not join his family in the doctor's profession? This is where they would paint you with big eyes and bubbles of confusion above your head. When did everything go wrong? I don't want to be here. And why the hell did Mike not see The Sixth Sense until this retrospective? I understand that the three of you think you are superhuman. The answers to all these questions and more, all coming up, courtesy of Binge Media. Are you ready? Glass. Released January 18th, 2019. Budget was $20 million. Box office, an astounding $247 million. And this was directed by our boy, M. Night Shyamalan. So, Split comes out. Pretty massive hit for Shyamalan. The three of us gave it pretty high marks. Critics enjoyed it. Audiences really enjoyed it. And nobody knew what M. Night was going to go from there. And then, sure as shit, within a couple months, he had tweeted that he was getting ready to work on the get-together between James McAvoy and Bruce Willis in the upcoming third movie in the trilogy. And here we are. Glass comes out three years after Split and is also a massive success, at least financially. We'll talk about critically here in a bit. But I have a feeling, gentlemen, this is the first movie in this retrospective that all three of us were 
semi-members of the Binge Media family. Mike, you had already done a retrospective or two around the time this movie had come out. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, so you were already a part of us. You had already done a couple retros with us. What were you feeling in the lead-up to Split? You said at the end of the last show that you were actually pretty excited for this. Oh, totally. This was my Avengers. Because I don't give a shit about those movies. Like, I, I haven't seen any of those in, in a long time. So this, for me, this was like... I mean, it's the crossover. You know what I mean? You're going to see Bruce Willis. Unbreakable is, I think, probably Shyamalan's best film. Here he is. He's revisiting it. But he's not doing some sort of, you know, cheap follow-up. He's crossing it over with Split, which I was a huge fan of. He's bringing all of them back. Sam Jackson is back. Bruce Willis is back. McAvoy. Anya Taylor-Joy. Bringing in Sarah Paulson. He's bringing in... Fits or treat Clark. I was just like, yeah, I'm on board. And the trailers looked fun. You know, you had all three of them. The uh, Lunatic Asylum, the Pink Room. It looked like a fun adventure. And the idea of these three big, larger-than-life characters meeting up and clashing, it seemed like it was going to be a, a good time at the movies. I was pretty pumped. Wow. Ganeri is pumped for this, Matt. How about you? You came out of a screening of Split pretty excited. What were you feeling when Glass was coming out? You and I, we were podcast partners in the lead up to this. I remember before one of the, I think it was one of the Transformers shows or something, we were both like, yeah, we're going to go see Glass. And then uh, I guess we'll just talk next week. We delayed a Transformers episode because both of us were seeing Glass that one weekend. How excited were you for this? Excited, yes. Confident, not 100%. I think the thing about Shyamalan is that he's worked best for me when my expectations are minimal. After Unbreakable, I had no expectations of the visit or split, and I enjoyed both those movies. Glass, unfortunately, was one of those instances where I thought the trailers looked abysmal. For two films that looked like they were going to blend so seamlessly, something just fell off when I was watching the marketing. I don't know if it was what I was seeing with the fight choreography, what little there is in this movie early on. The biggest wild card I had was which Bruce Willis were we going to get? Were we going to get the unbreakable Bruce Willis or were we going to get the post-unbreakable Bruce Willis where outside of a couple Wes Anderson movies and Looper, he's mostly made crap. Obviously, McAvoy's a pro, so I had no doubt he'd come to play. And I was curious to see Sam Jackson revisit this character. Nick Fury has taken up so much of his time in the interim And a lot of his other roles have been kind of, you've seen one, you've seen them all for the most part. So there were some concerns also on the January release date, but Split was in January as well. So I don't really let that warrant me too much. But I was very, I was excited to see if he could pull this off. But I didn't allow myself to go in overly hyped because I've done that with a couple of Shyamalan films and it has not worked out for me. Yeah, definitely go back in this retrospective and hear those shows. Yeah, Matt has let his anger loose on a few of these episodes. If you want to go back and take a listen to those. I'm in between you two. I was on record. I said I wasn't a huge fan of Unbreakable. Split, I was more on the good side, but still, I I did think that that was one of his better films. So I'm thinking, okay... Matt, you were talking about which Bruce Willis we were going to get. I was thinking about which M. Night we were going to get because were we going to have the ego-driven, I am on top of the world guy who came around in Unbreakable? Or are we going to get the guy who's laid low and for the past couple films he's actually 
kind of proven himself and been the guy that I always thought he was. Not the best filmmaker, but definitely not the worst. And he does his own stuff. and His stories have actually turned out to be very good. So I was wondering which one of these I was going to get. Am I going to get Terrible Twist Shyamalan or a Shyamalan who is proven himself? Mike, you said you didn't really watch any of the Shyamalan films except for the two leading up to this. How much were you aware of his work and such in the lead up to this film? Well, I mean, I think everybody's aware, just kind of a feeling of, you know, which ones people like and which ones don't, and you hear about the twists and stuff like that. So, but it was just based on Unbreakable and Split. So whether or not Last Airbender was good or After or whatever like that, the quality of those movies didn't really matter to me going into this. I'm excited to see my old pal David Dunn again. And guess what? He showed up. This time he had a beard. He showed up, but for how long is the question <laughs> as we get into this that movie? That is the question. We'll yeah, get into did this. Did he show up in mind and body or just body alone? I, I'm telling you, I think it was a weekend break from one of his straight-to-DVD movies because he's not in this nearly as much as I was expecting, but we'll definitely get into that. In fact, let's just get into the film right now, boys. We start off, we have James McAvoy once again playing Kevin. He's going through a fight with two of his personalities, and he emerges as Patricia. Asking which of the two girls he has chained up. Which one wants a peanut butter and jelly sandwich before we get the opening credits. Now we're going to see Sam Jackson. And as I mentioned, I guess Bruce Willis in this movie. But is there any question, guys, that McAvoy, he was going to act out even more of the 22 different personalities here than last week. That he is the star of this film. Okay, so this is an interesting question, because I, I was thinking about this when I was watching this film for the second time in my life earlier, and I, I was watching it. This is sort of a film that doesn't really have a main character in a way. It's odd, because in theory, sort of the hero you would think would be Bruce Willis's character, because he's the hero of Unbreakable. He's probably the most iconic of all the, the stars and stuff, and he's the one who's playing the character who's the more, most morally upright, heroic type. So you would think he would be the main character, but like you said, he's not actually in it that much. And a lot of the film, the plot is sort of being moved by Sam Jackson's character, but he doesn't even speak for the first hour of the movie or anything. And parts of it... Sarah Paulson almost seems like she's the main character because she's kind of interacting with all three of them. But, of course, she's not really the main character. We don't know what her motives are. And so you've got McAvoy, who's kind of at the center of it. But he's also, I mean, just one of the sort of larger tapestry that's going on. And with all these different personalities that he has, you're not totally capable of getting a read on him either. That's one of the things that's very odd about this film, I think, is that it, it doesn't have a traditional kind of character ensemble structure where you know who you're looking for and you know what you want them to achieve and you know who they're going to overcome and everything like that. It has a different structure, which ends up getting hammered into us by, by the ending of the film, which we'll get to. Oh, boy. McAvoy, for the most part, he's much better in Split than he is here because right. this one, he's a lot more showboat. There, there's a scene later on where it's rapid fire and it doesn't work as well as the little snippets that we got on the laptop at the end of Split. And I wonder... How much of this is just McAvoy did not have as much time to prep? Because let's be honest, this was a rush job, considering how well Split did. We're talking two years turnaround time, and I honestly think some of my issues with this movie would have been fine-tuned if Sean might give himself a little bit more time to really, really, really plan this out. I do agree that the, the structure makes this trilogy very unique, because all three of these movies are very different stylistically and even structurally. But with all that said... Man, just, I'm trying to calm down now because I'm going to get more upset as this movie goes on. So, 
just move on. Wow. See, I'm in the minority here. I think that McAvoy's even better this week than he was last week. Oh, that's interesting. There's a little more showmanship on display, but at the same time, I think the way he gets these characters out, I find him much more engaging, much more endearing, and much more interesting than he was last week. Last week, I was more on Anya Joyce's side, but here, I like Kevin a lot in this, and I think that's a lot due to what McAvoy's bringing here. I think I'm going to sort of split the difference. I don't think there's anything in McAvoy's sort of efforts or his conception of the character or anything that's weaker than what was going on in Split, but I do think that Shyamalan sort of doesn't give him the best deck of cards to play with because I think maybe after Split was so well-received and he probably had a lot of fun making it, he maybe leaned too hard into the different personalities aspect of it because in the first Split, he has all these personalities, but you really only see what, four or five of them, uh-huh. and then you see little snippets of the other ones in these sort of video clips. In this one, it's, it's like he's doing like an audition reel. Like he's going through all these different personalities, and he's like, he's got the Scottish one. He does like a twin brother and sister. Yeah. And he's, he's, he's doing a lot. They're really putting him a lot of stuff to do. And when you have that much to do, there's less to hang on to. It feels a little more show-offy, a little less authentic here. I don't think that McAvoy is the problem with that, and I don't think that this is really that big of a problem either. And in fact, in the ending moments of the film, I think McAvoy just he's very touching in the end. But I don't think he's as good as he is in Split. Like in Split, I was like, that's something where I feel like he should have been at least in the conversation for a Best Actor prize somewhere mm-hmm. because that was just such an impressive performance. And this one, I don't think is on that level. So we see two idiots do the Superman punch on somebody and then get chased away. They go to one of their houses and then get taken out by David Dunn. Kind of a weird way to get reintroduced to this character and even his son, who actually is the same exact actor who played him in Unbreakable. What an interesting reintroduction to this character, wouldn't you guys say? It is odd, isn't it? Yeah. I don't think it's odd at all because it's consistent. I like that he's been a vigilante this whole time. Yeah. I like that, too. It's a little disappointing that getting around Robin Wright, oh, she, his wife left him, or she died or something. So that part of his life is just gone. But I like that his son still views him as a superhero and they have a nice rapport. So I guess it's weird in the sense that you're not reintroduced to him in civilian life, but starting with him in the raincoat, eating the shit out of people, you know, and this one really is the most, for better or worse, this is the one that plays most to superhero structure is no different than starting a Batman movie with Batman beating the shit out of somebody on a rooftop. Yeah, funny you say that because when we get reintroduced to his son Joseph, he's kind of running things almost Alfred style. He's got this little bat cave thing going on and I just thought the reason why I said it was odd is just because the reason you just said, not reintroduced to him in civilian life. Is this what he's been doing the entire time? It's a little bizarre and yeah, we don't see Robin White Penn, but we do see her character in a bit of a flashback and I definitely have things to say about those flashbacks, but It was just weird to just see him in this state as opposed to before because before M. Night was so fixated on lingering on him. And here we're seeing him just beat the shit out of these people for doing Superman punches. Well, uh, you know, it's weird. You talk about like how much time was spent on him in Unbreakable versus how much time is spent on him here. This movie has a very odd pacing. Did you guys feel the same way? Oh my God. Where it's like, it has to go through so much plot in the first 20, 30 minutes. Like it really has, it's like almost, you could almost make the first... 20 or 30 minutes in this film into a film of its own. You know what I mean? You just expand it out and stuff like that. You have like an arc with like a beginning, a middle, and the end. And then there's a very long middle section where stuff is going on, but it's not super fast paced. Then there's a climax, which is not the climax we're expecting. And then there's this long kind of Uh, epilogue, which is very important to the story, 
But it, it comes after the climax, and I remember the first time I saw it, I was like, where, where are we going with this? I was like, this movie's running too long. It is longer than any of his other movies. Whether or not that's successful in the end, I think we'll get to, but it's a different kind of pacing for Shyamalan compared to the rest of his career, which is very deliberately kind of paced. Like, his films are not super fast-paced films in general. His original cut, just to give you a heads up, was three and a half hours. So Jesus. he almost Zack Snyder this up. The fact that this is the longest movie of his career. And what I've noticed in watching this movie, it's funny you mentioned the pace, Mike, is that when it's over two hours and it's an M. Night Shyamalan pace, you definitely notice it. Man, this is one of those movies where the parts are greater than the whole. As far as there's individual scenes I like, but to be honest, I thought we get to the insane asylum a lot sooner than we do. What do you guys think of... Joseph here, we get reintroduced to him, and he's actually the Alfred of this operation. Kind of cool seeing him, right? There's something about this guy, Treat Clark, I think is his name. Who, he was in Gladiator, too, in addition to being in Unbreakable. Oh, wow. He was kind of, in that moment, was kind of like being positioned. I, I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure he's Joaquin Phoenix's nephew in Gladiator. But uh, he was kind of being positioned at that time. Like, oh, maybe this is like the next great actor, and he just kind of didn't really go anywhere and then here he pops up as a fully grown man and it's weird because he's like he's, he's, he's not a bad actor I'm not, I'm not i'm not saying he's a bad actor but you can tell when you're watching his performance that he would not be getting this role if he hadn't played this character 20 years earlier there's just something that's just a step not quite to where you'd want it to be whether it's in terms of the punchiness of the the dialogue or or the believability his character, I'm not totally sure, but there is there's something that's just like a step off. And he's also got, and I, I'm going to say something that's very like superficial, and like, I'm not trying to body shame anybody or anything. There's some kid actors who have like this great kid actor face, and then you see them when they become an adult, and they still have the kid actor face, but like the rest of their proportions grew in normal adult portions. I know exactly what you're and talking about. And they end up looking very odd. Yeah. You know, yeah, exactly. It's a thing. It's a real thing. There's... It's called uh, Haley Joel Osment syndrome. Yes, yeah. I was going to say. It's like Haley Joel Osment had that. I think Macaulay Culkin had that. Where you're just like, oh, wow, they're meant to be eight years old forever, and here they exactly. are 28, and they... No offense to the guy. He looks fine, you know, but it's just... It's no. just... No, you're right, because you see him, and he still has that same exact pout, that same exact look, the lazy lip and stuff that he did in Unbreakable all those years ago. But then you're right, like, the rest of his body is just improportional, and it just it, it makes you makes you do a double-triple take sometimes when you're watching the film. So Joseph's giving David the rundown of where the troublemakers are, and then he warns David that authorities are out looking for him pretty hard, judging from what the scanners are saying. And here is where I will give another complaint of this movie. This scene of him coming up from behind his dead wife, who's obviously not Robin Wright Penn, but they have a scene with David and his son later that is, in fact, a cut scene from Unbreakable. It is on the Blu-ray. I watched it for that review. Look, this movie is going to clock in, again, as longest film to date, over two hours. His original cut did run about three and a half hours. I honestly feel this stuff, all these flashbacks to the original film, could and should have been cut to get under two hours. What do you guys feel about that? Yeah, so much of this movie with the continuity of getting back certain actors, and God knows that's going to ruin the reappearance of Elijah's mother because she does not oh, look 90. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> I would have asked all this, and you know how we talk about in the Bad Shyamalan movies, you start thinking, what's the twist going to be? Yeah. Yeah. My thought watching this movie for the first 20 minutes, and this is going to sound so dumb when I explain it, but just hear me out. <laughs> I thought the Sarah Paulson character was going to be revealed to be Robin Wright, but 
only in his subconscious he was hallucinating because he couldn't get over the death of his wife. Whoa! That's a twist and a half. But I definitely see it coming from Shyamalan's head. So that's what you thought when you were watching this originally, Matt, when you saw this in theaters? Oh, my mind was firing on all cylinders. At this point, I could never say Shyamalan will not surprise me. Every new movie, even when old comes out, I'm going to be doing this. What's going to happen? Where is he either going to do something I could not have called or something so remarkably stupid that I thought of it and I feel worse about myself? Than having <laughs> All right. So before we go further, I'll go ahead and ask, did you call a lot of what happens at the end of this movie? Did you call the, I guess we'll say twist that happened at the end of this movie without going into what they are? Did you call those? There's some reveals that I called. Okay. I'll save that. But there are certain things I, I got right just based on the trailers. And As a bookend of a trilogy, there's certain things you expect. This is a film where you do start to see some of the Shyamalan, you could say ego or self-involvement or, or whatever, it's just like vanity. You see some of that come back into this movie that I think was actually absent from Split uh -huh. and from The Visit, which I think is what made those two films work so well. You can start to see some of that come in, and I think you see that in how these flashbacks are treated as though Unbreakable is one of the great kind of nostalgic films that everybody knows and loves that you have to incorporate the clips from and, you know, in, into the film and everything. Like, it's sort of acting like the audience all has this great fondness for the characters from Unbreakable and everything. And as much as I love Unbreakable, you know, and I don't think that most people do feel that way. Uh, and it, so it's, it's, it's odd. I, I think I would cut them. This film is a sequel to two unrelated films, or seemingly unrelated films. And so it kind of has to be this culmination, or at least it decides to be this culmination of all these different things that really are years in the making. And it, it's impressive in that way, but at the same time, yeah, probably not necessary. I mean, if you're watching the film, you probably know about Unbreakable, I guess. I mean, right? I mean, you'd think so. you think so. Yeah. But there, there is a couple times in the film where I do I noticed it more this time around than I did the first time. There's a couple moments where Shyamalan kind of has to I, I either remind audiences what they saw in the previous movies or inform audiences who hadn't seen the previous movies. So, like, there's the part where Anya Taylor-Joy's principal or whatever, is talking to her, and she goes, oh, you know that uh, guy from the last movie who kidnapped you uh, in Split? Well, this is the second movie. This is the third movie, actually, and so now he's been caught, and uh, I understand that the killed characters from the previous, but, like, you know, it's, yeah. it, it's very, it's very, like, on the, I usually don't have a problem with that kind of exposition, to be quite honest. You sometimes just need to get it out of the way, but I, I this time around, it kind of stuck out. We then cut to Hedwig on roller skates, which is a pretty funny image. What isn't funny, though, is that he's got these cheerleaders, a new set of girls, chained up, and he is playing the same card as the last film, warning them all that the beast is coming. How long after the first film is this? Are we talking hours, or are we talking months? Matt, do you have any idea? Uh, don't even get me started on the timeline problems this movie causes. That's not one I thought of. Yeah, unclear. I don't know, because this is what comes out two years after Split, yeah. right? Uh -huh. Yep. But it can't be two years, because that's too long for... If it was two years, then Casey, the audience, she wouldn't still be paying for it. And so it's got to be some amount of time. Huh. But at the same time, it's not hours later because she talks about how she, her uncle is in jail. Yeah. And she's with a foster family. Like, stuff has happened. So I, I don't know. It is a little vague. Mm -hmm. We then cut to Joseph Dunn, who's working in the store that David owns. And he's ringing out M. Night. 
And I never put it together last week, but this character that M. Night is playing is the same guy who was looking at security <laughs> cameras last week. And he will also spell out that he's the same guy who Davis stopped from committing a crime all those years ago. Now, God. while I found most of the David callbacks to be tedious, I found this stuff, I don't know, kind of fun that M. Night's kind of, he's once again interjecting himself in. But again, I did not put together that this guy that Davis stopped in Unbreakable at the football stadium is the same guy who's looking at security cameras and split because why would you yeah like, that's true. That's what's so funny about this to me it's like he's solving a problem that nobody has like it's like yeah that's true he's like well people are going to want to know why the computer specialist the surveillance guy from split was <laughs> stadium and I was like no one thinking about this because you so he like it's a chance to solve he has to wear a circle that we didn't even know existed you know but uh, I, this is so funny to me. Like, and not in a way where I'm like looking down on the film. Like, but I also don't think it's intentional. I don't know how to explain it. I just, it just amuses me greatly. Combined with his awkward acting. Yeah. I rolled my eyes when I saw him. I thought he would be above. Like, again, you could choke on the amount of breadcrumbs this guy desperately tries to leave throughout this entire movie to make it all connect. And let's address the elephant in the room, the one in the raincoat. Bruce Willis looks like he could not give a shit for this entire movie. You're, you're so fucking right. I, I don't know. I might disagree with you guys a little bit. Really? On this one. Yeah, I don't think that this is, like, this is a movie where I, going into it, before I saw it, I was like, it would be so great if Bruce is back. You know what I mean? It would be so great if this is the one, because I can't remember who said it earlier, but somebody was talking about how it was, like, 2012, he did, like, Looper, Moonrise Kingdom, and it's like he was like in the in the zone. He's like, oh man, Bruce Willis is here. And then it's back to the fucking straight to DVD movies. You know what I mean? And it's like years after that. It's like seven years after like his last good performance. And it's like, is this the one? He's working with M Night again. He's playing this character that he did years earlier in one of his best performances. It's like, is he back? Is he going to bring something new to the character? And I think he's showing up. I, I actually do think he's showing up. But I don't think that he goes all the way you know what i mean you yeah. want this to be like stallone and creed you want this to be like the old timer comes back and he's bringing everything that he used to bring but he's also bringing these new elements of age and different perspective and he's playing it in a different light for a different context and he does it in such a way that you remind how great they were at one time and how great they still are and you just are just like love the performance he doesn't do that here but I do think that he is trying here, and I think that he is adding some notes, some new notes to this character in terms of the character's self-doubt and how that plays into him on screen, especially the, him aging on screen. But it's not a great performance by any means. This is sort of a thing where if he was bringing a Stallone and Creed level of commitment and understanding of the character, this might be like a great movie. I don't know, but it, he he's not bringing that, so it's not a great movie. I think this movie's had a lot of problems beyond Bruce Willis, but put a pin in the self doubt conversation because that's one of my biggest issues I have with this movie later on. Interesting, man. We are all over the map with this review, Mike. You're thinking that Bruce came to play. Me and Matt are like he's kind of checked out. I don't know if he just came for a weekend. I kind of like what M Night does here. <laughs> you guys are laughing at it. I'm interested to see how this review goes, man. This should have been split last week. So. This, well, this. Movie movie's crazy. I mean, this yeah. movie is full of all kinds of, like, weird tones and, like, things that shouldn't work together and maybe don't work together. But this is, this, oh, there's a lot going on in this movie, and I think that that's reflected in the reviews that it got. It was all over the place. There were some people who thought it was terrible. Some people were like, elements of it are good, but other parts are crap. You know, I mean, really, this was a pretty divisive film. Speaking of Kevin's 23 personalities, we had 23 different opinions when I was chatting with people about this movie. David says he's going to take a walk. 
We didn't see Bruce, wearing a hell of a beard, by the way, going through people in a crowd. Now, it's easy to forget if you haven't seen Unbreakable in a while that one of the things he can do is touch people and see their future. So he sees the place where Kevin is holding the girls, and he saves them right before the beast is unleashed. So here we're getting it, guys. We're getting these two finally hooking up for the first time in this movie, for the first time of a couple. What did you guys think of when Bruce was saving these cheerleaders? I think this is a good sequence. I agree. Yeah, I, the fight choreography is surprisingly good for a guy who sucked in The Last Airbender, to put it mildly, with uh-huh. the choreography. Now, it was helped by the fact that there's very little in the way of digital rendering. Yeah. And Bruce Willis doesn't really have to act when he's moving around. It's probably a stunt double for part of these scenes. I think that's how little of shit he gave. Um, that's probably true, yeah. The funniest thing about this movie, watching it, and then watching Dark Phoenix, is like, oh, that's why Professor Xavier was hitting the gym in those ten years. <laughs> Uh, I think Shyamalan is what what helps him in these fight scenes because you're right. Like Last Airbender, like looks like shit. This doesn't look like shit. I think that the idea keep it small is so much the right idea here. Like it's not some big epic battle. It's two guys in a abandoned factory or whatever it's supposed to be. Like there's not a lot that's going on. It's they have powers, but they're not shooting blasts of light and energy at each other or anything like that. It gets pretty small, and it's like this is still a pretty low budget movie. Like what was the budget on it? 20. $20 million. Yeah. yeah, see, I mean, that's crazy. I mean, $20 million, you can make like a... I mean, there's a lot of like movies that don't involve superheroes that are made for $20 million. There's a lot of movies about college students that are made for $20 million that aren't at the conclusion to three films or whatever. And it's like the fact that he's able to make that work in this is pretty impressive, whether or not the film... I want to put your comment on the poster for this movie. It doesn't look like shit. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and uh, interesting note, too, that's once again M. Night's money. He put the money that he made off a split into this. And, again, you say what you will about the guy's ego, and we're definitely having problems with it. It's rearing its ugly head once again in this movie, as we've outlined. But he puts his money where his mouth is, man. He's not using studio's money. He's using his own money for the majority of this. So that's pretty – I'll go ahead and say admirable. You guys are complimenting this fight scene. I have some problems with it, honestly. One, M. Night has no idea of how to shoot this because in some parts we're seeing them throw each other around. In others, Knight does something that like Danny Boyle used to do a lot where he mounts the camera on their heads and we're seeing it from their point of view. Some would think he's kind of giving – the train spotting. Train spotting, yeah. Some would think that you know M. Night's giving these scenes an edge, but in my opinion, given that we don't see another fight scene for a long time, I think he's kind of hiding the fact that even with all his experience at this point, he doesn't have a clue on how to film this. And, you know, this is going to date this podcast. I don't care. Kong versus Godzilla came out, and spoilers, the fights in that movie, next to everything else, I think are great. So even two CGI monsters had an edge in how they were shot. And these two guys aren't CGI, and they're, I don't know, I just didn't find it that exciting. Mike, you're saying you found it exciting? Yeah, I think so. And I think that actually that kind of the, the sort of Danny Boyle, I, the one I think of is Harvey Keitel in uh, Mean Street. Oh, he's yeah. Drunk. Yeah. But um, yeah. And uh, I, I think that's actually such a, I mean, that's like the vertigo zoom. It's like so uh, showy that like it can be used poorly a lot of times. But I, I think that that kind of works here. Or at least I liked it. I, whether or not it works, I guess, is a different kind of question. But I liked it, I think, because of how samey a lot of action scenes and, and fight scenes, especially in superhero movies, are shot these days where it's so much just kind of there's the camera and there's the fucking CGI compositing and everything that's going on. And you see the flashes of color and, and, and stuff like that, but there's not anything interesting going on with the camera. 
and there's not any sense of perspective or the human kind of connection. So I think that putting the camera right there on Bruce Willis's face, and you can see his face, and you can see that he is Bruce Willis and everything like that. And this is not one of the parts where the stuntman is there. I think that that gives it such a different air than what you're usually going to see in this kind of movie. And I think that some of the most interesting parts of this movie, at least intellectually or, or kind of creatively, are what it's saying about superhero movies or superhero stories, which are arguably the dominant kind of commercial film form right now. So like saying something about that is, I think, very welcome in this day and age because there's so many of them and so few of them have anything to say about the genre or doing anything interesting with the genre other than just whether you like the characters in the mm-hmm. story or not. So I, that's one of the things I think is interesting, because he, he's doing this with these characters that he has created himself that he owns, that he has the control of the iconography for. He's not beholden to any kind of IP. He doesn't have to plan the next reboot of the Split franchise or anything like that. We're going to get into that later. It's very on the nose of certain parts, but there's parts where we're going to want to talk about that. Much like Unbreakable, more so than Unbreakable, actually, this movie really shines a light on the fact that Shyamalan knows nothing about comic books or superhero movie structure. There's a lot of instances where I take issue. And there's certain parts where he acts like he's the first person who's ever done this kind of stuff. To be fair, he was the first person to kind of do this back in 2000. But now we've had a gluttony of superhero films since then. So I see it as him going back to the well of what he did 20 years ago. I feel like Shyamalan's acting like the last 15, 20 years of big movies have not happened. It is a weird feeling. You're right, because he is kind of... It's not super reactive to your Marvel films, your X-Men, Fox films, your Dark Knights and stuff like that. Like, it's not very reactive. It does kind of act like those movies haven't come out yet. You're right. I'm kind of riffing more on sort of archetypes. Now, whether or not that's relevant to the comic books... I think it's on question. It is sort of interesting because you're right, because he does kind of seem like he is sort of picking up from 2000 without having any references or allusions to all these movies that have got since then, your Avengers and your Dark Knights and your Black Panthers and everything like that. It's really, because it really doesn't have to do with those. It's it's sort of more about the idea, and it might be the idea to the point of genericness. It's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. It's sort of, you know, I watched Mystery Men again the other night. Oh, um, and that's, yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's a film that's weird because it's it's parody of superheroes, and in theory, it's parody of superhero movies. But it was made in 1999, yeah. so at that time there were basically no superhero movies except for the Batman movies and the Superman movies, which at that point were like ancient history. So it's riffing on a genre that basically didn't exist at the time. And if you watch it now, it, it's so much of its moment that it kind of doesn't say anything about all the stuff that we're used to now. And Unbreakable was just a year after that. So it's kind of in the same headspace. Well, I mean, if you ask M. Night, especially around this time, he was asked to do both Marvel and DC movies. He turned them down. I think this is his version of a superhero film, obviously. So take that for what it is, but he has been asked, according to him. He according to him. Yeah, that's why I added that adage. I think DC would be stupid enough to do it because they're desperate Thing, but because of how intricate the Marvel, for better or worse, how methodical and planned out you know their approaches, I can't imagine. I think Shane Black, Taika Waititi, James Gunn—they're the closest Marvel has gotten to letting the directors do their own thing, like really bring their own style to it. You know, Shyamalan—he's one of those guys who wants to be his own movie, and I can't imagine after Last Airbender he would want to do 
any of their properties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and that would be a, such a mistake for both parties there. Like, it would be a mistake for any of these big studios with their big IPs to go to this guy who's so idiosyncratic and so uh-huh. such an oddball in a lot of ways and has such an ego and is so sort of in control of his films. It would be a mistake for them to give over one of their, you know, huge properties to this guy. It would also be a mistake for him, who, like I said, has ego, is in control of his stuff, has a vision. It would be a mistake for him to tether himself to some big product that he's going to have to be sticking to. I mean, his last, his worst movie is The Last Airbender, and that's that's his one adaptation. So I'm, I am surprised that he, he said that he's been approached. Maybe, he said, maybe because it's all over the place. They're just like fucking shooting at the wall and seeing what it Sometimes it hits, sometimes it doesn't. I can maybe see that happening. They go through a window, and as it looks like they're getting ready to lock up again, Hedwig and David are captured by people headed by Sarah Paulson. More on her here in a little bit. We cut to a hospital, and Kevin and David, they're trapped, and McAvoy is, I think he's at his best here, especially when the strobe light hits him. How weird was this little weakness, by the way? The strobe light. Oh, God, the, the weaknesses in this movie. Oh, my, oh my God. God. They spray David with water. It's not water. He's not, like fucking, he's a it's cat. not kryptonite. Not, okay, I got ra- to rant about this. Go for it. They treat water like it's kryptonite. Yeah. And it makes no sense because Unbreakable... You get the sense that he's weakened only in the sense that, like, you know, you inhale water too quickly. This one, if he's near water, how the fuck does this guy take a shower? <laughs> that was my next point. <laughs> like, like this this shit makes no sense. And this is where Shyamalan really struggles with making the superhero, because every superhero needs a weakness, but he goes the literal route with Superman and Kryptonite. Like, I, Sarah Paulson should just hold up a bottle of Gatorade, tie that around his neck, and drop kick him into the ocean like Gene Hackman did. Well, I just like that they spray him with water when he gets a little unruly, like he's a cat or something like that. Yeah. Like, yeah. He's like, yeah, a little scary bottle. So, so that, that scene is where we talk about his self-doubt, where he's in the prison and she's talking to him. The problem I have is that he never counters her arguments. Because if you recall, he didn't believe this shit either. He had to be convinced personally. Right, but, okay, well, go ahead. I have have a response to that, but yeah, go ahead. And and here, he never brings up the touch telepathy, which, by the way, recontextualizes that he is literally a superhero, and to the point where they do this with the guy, Mr. Glass, who does not have any superpowers whatsoever. (laughs) So, so much of this movie just, like I said, it shines a light on the fact that Shyamalan is out of his element with the comic book genre, and even that ties into Unbreakable. He said in the opening crawl of Unbreakable, the average comic book has 32 pages. What fucking census and statistical data did you pull that from, sir? It's like he's pulling only his only comic book knowledge. It's like what he read as a kid, which would be, I don't know, the 70s and 80s. Backed um, by that. So, yeah, I have, I have a lot of issues with, especially with David Dunn not fighting back whatsoever. He does have super strength. That's established and unbreakable. But he says, like, oh, you're not as strong as you think you are. He should have said, you're right, because look at my physique. I should not physically be able to do the things that I can do. He's not a bodybuilder. He's not someone that's trained his entire life. He's 63 uh, years old. Yeah. He's 63 years old. Why does he never bring that up? So here's what I think. What I think is interesting about his character and his arc in this movie as, as compared to Unbreakable, which is that in Unbreakable, 
This is my reading. I think that David knows, basically from the beginning of that movie, that he does have this incredible strength, that he is an exceptional ability. He's in denial of it, because he knows that that's not something that makes logical sense in society, that that's not what society wants to believe. And so that whole movie is Sam Jackson trying to convince him, yes, you are extraordinary, yes, you are extraordinary, and him saying, no, I'm not, no, I'm not, until eventually he accepts that he is, but I think he knows deep down all along that he is. What I think is different about this movie is that it has a, it has sort of the inverse arc where he knows, because he's been doing this for 20 years, that he has this power. We know that he has this power because we're the audience. Sarah Paulson knows that he has the power too, and we don't know that necessarily at the beginning of the movie, but her performance, the way that she delivers it is so sinister that we know that there's something more to her than just how she's presenting. So she knows, she's gaslighting him. She's trying to get him to think that he is delusional. And it's kind of the opposite, where he has every reason to believe that he is superpowered, but she actually starts to get him to doubt it because he's been sort of broken, as as we see, at least by him being captured and everything for the first time in this point in his life. And so he's tricked into believing something that he doesn't actually believe. And it's the opposite of the unbreakable structure where he keeps positing that he's there's a lot of guys who can lift that kind of thing. There's a lot of this, there's a lot of that, when he knows deep down that he's not. And this is sort of the opposite, where they, they've talked him back into this self-doubt, which he has no reason to think is true. And I think that that's such a fascinating kind of reversal, precisely because it doesn't make any logical sense, because there's no reason for him to doubt himself, and there's no reason for the audience to doubt him either. And to take that character on this journey, I think that is it's a strange choice, but I think where the ending comes down, and we'll get to it, it is the right call for what Shyamalan is trying to say at the end, and we'll get to that. That's my defense, at least. One more thing I'd just like to reiterate is he buys into her bullshit too quickly. Especially with the, if I'm David Dunn and I am in that cell, I would tell her, okay, if I am a normal person, why am I not in a normal cell? Why am I in a steel-reinforced cell? And why are you going to spray me with water if I cannot do the things that you believe that I can do? Everything with Sarah Paulson's plan, she's basically evil Nick Fury. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry, spoiler alert. And by the way, what's that psychosis called of believing you're a superhero? Uh, I know, that's a good question. Super syndrome. Ryan Reynolds syndrome. I would have these issues of Shyamalan took more time to really finding the script. So much of this movie I find remarkably sloppy. I'd definitely go with that. And I think you're right, Matt. I think it's rushed. I think that's a big part of it. He likes to linger on each and every script he does. He likes to get them as good as he can get. I think this one, he just kind of, for lack of a better term, shit it out. Do you think it's rushed, or do you think it's that he's trying to connect two things that he didn't really plan on connecting, and so it ends up just being kind of an awkward fit? Both. I, I think it's both. I think it's yeah. He had originally had Kevin in the first Unbreakable script. He had him in that movie, and he ended up cutting that out and saying, okay, I'm going to get back to this later. And so this is something he re-injected in for Split, and I think you're absolutely right. I think it just it just feels awkward when you re-inject those two elements into this movie. I so bought Split being in the Unbreakable universe until I saw this movie. And I'm like, it feels like we put two jigsaw puzzles together that just don't fit. And the funniest thing, you know, I talked about David sort of being dumbed down considerably. The thing about Kevin is, if you convince him that he's not a supervillain, you still got to convince the other 22. Yeah. True. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. We then cut to the mother of glass, who, by the way, is two years older than Sam Jackson. (laughs) 
Well, it's because they had to cast her for the first movie where she is his mom and all those uh-huh. flashback scenes. But it's like, they didn't anticipate this happening, so his mom's the same age as he is. It's great. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's like, great? Uh, Did you just use the term it's great? It's great in a bad way. Okay. I mean, it's hilarious. Come on. It's like yeah. that Mr. Show sketch where Bob Odenkirk is spending all this time spreading uh, mayonnaise and, and mustard to the point where his daughter's growing up, and then by the end of it, she's older than he is. And she's going, hi, Daddy, I'm dying. It's a little bit like that. I need to apologize to Jay Edgar for that movie's old age makeup. <laughs> yeah. This is so bad. Man. Yeah, it literally looks like frosting on a cake. It's so bad the way this, <laughs> this is done. Uh, so she's giving background on Glass, this movie's ma- namesake, by the way. We haven't hardly mentioned him, but yes, he, this is the guy that the movie's named after. And then we see Dr. Ellie. Well, oh, go ahead. On the surface, it's named after him. But there's a more pretentious reason why this movie's called Glass. True. We see Dr. Ellie Staple interview Kevin and Joseph. Now, Sarah Paulson, I can't remember whether she'd won her Golden Globe and Emmy yet at this point. She had, right? She had, yeah. She, okay. For, for OJ? Yeah. yeah. But she, she had a bit of clout and took this role script unseen totally. because, by the way, she really wanted to work with M. Night. Has she seen his movies? Another little bit of tidbit here. I'm not sure if she was still with her at this point, but her and Cherry Jones were a couple for a number of years. I think during the time that she was in... Oh, Cherry Jones, yeah. Yeah, she was in... I think she was with her around the time she was in Science in the Village. So she knew of him, and there was probably pillow talk about him around that time. How do we feel Sarah Paulson does in this movie, guys? You know, I don't know. It's an odd performance. I mean, she does a lot of theater. And theater acting can be very, I mean, theatrical, be very big and very kind of broad. And I think it's also why she didn't really click with audiences until she started doing the Ryan Murphy shows, which some of which are terrible, some of which I think are very good. And that's such a specific and hyper kind of stylized way of, of storytelling. And she fit with that and really vibed with a lot of people because of those parts. Mm-hmm. And here she has such odd delivery it's so specifically weird that it's hard for me to even evaluate whether or not it's bad but it you don't ever trust her and i don't know if you're supposed to be sort of deceived by her character or not it's difficult to tell i don't know there's so many different acting styles going on because you've got like anya taylor joy and she's so like real and like empathetic and she like is playing it so straight forward and like sincerely and you've got Bruce Willis and he's doing his Bruce Willis thing where it's like I've talked about this in another episode where it's like the line between a bad Bruce Willis performance and a good Bruce Willis performance could be like weirdly thin because he's so low-key in his performances and he's so lazy in his terrible performances that like he can slip from one end to the other and you've got McAvoy and he's going real big because that's who that character is and you've got Paulson and she's not going big exactly but she's going so strange and specific that it's like they don't all fit in the same way and I kind of think that's meant to be intentional because they all have these different color palettes and they're like they're all from these different kind of backgrounds but I don't know I don't think it really works and I don't really think that she is that successful here wow you're a big Sarah Paulson fan too I'm surprised to hear you say that Mike's right that the acting styles in this movie are all over the place everybody's in a different movie I think Sean's argument would be that I'm bringing multiple movies together so everyone should feel like they're being transported to the same platform but unfortunately you've got to have a certain amount of middle ground that's established when you do a crossover and this movie never 
never feels like its own thing. It feels, at a lot of points, too much like an Unbreakable sequel. At points, it feels like Unbreakable is an afterthought, and it's split two, rebroken. I don't know, whatever the fuck you call it, but... Yeah. <laughs> split, splat, shit. You know, all three of those are kind of so... We find out that Audrey passed away two years before this incident, and Staple puts together that her passing away made Joseph see his dad as a superhero. Here is when we see a scene that was cut from Unbreakable, and as I said previously, I didn't think this was anywhere near needed. The scene with David and his son, I just... Ugh, no thanks. All right, well, if I'm not so hot on what we've done with the other characters here, let's cut to Anya Taylor-Joy's character of Casey, who asks to talk to both Kevin and David. Reason Staple gives is, you're the victim. But next we see her, next time we see her, it's face-to-face with Hedwig. But my God, of all character assassinations that M. Night does in this movie, this, by far, is my least favorite. This girl worked so hard to get away from this guy, and now she's face-to-face with the same guy guy trying to convince him that the horde needs to give up their light even grasping his arms in an effort to plead with them god do i fucking hate this why is it every time we review anya taylor joy matt i have to go off on a ramp because i enjoy this girl so much and they give her shit to work with this is awful i hate what they do with her character you're not wrong and i'll leave it at that (laughs) yeah i mean i think we'll get to that later really because it's sort of key to the ending Uh you know This this movie has such an odd, I mean, this is such a strange movie in a lot of ways, and it has such an odd characterization where each of the three super-powered, although actually same deck doesn't have any super-powered, so it's kind of odd, but each of the three kind of comic book type Mm -hmm. characters each have one person who's uh, connected to them who is their tether to the the real world, in theory, and for Sam Jackson, it's his mother. For uh, Bruce Wilson's son, for James McAvoy, it's on Taylor Joy. And the movie kind of in the end ends up sort of being more about them than it does about the ostensible stars, uh, in a way. And because of that, I think that Anya Taylor Joy's character is so important to this film and what Shyamalan's trying to do. This idea of it, this movie does go too far because in Split, the ending hinges around this kind of empathetic connection between Uh Kevin with all his personalities and everything and Casey. And it doesn't negate all the terrible shit that Kevin does throughout the movie. I know some people did think that way at the time and and since then. I think that that movie is just about how people who who share traumas, even if one of them ends up being an abused new one, doesn't. They can see kind of a, a shared commonality in their own trauma. And Shyamalan brings that back here. He kind of goes too far with it. He kind of divorces the characters' empathy for each other from the evil of most of the McAvoy character. And because of that, it ends up having this kind of strange message where this girl feels so much of a soft spot for this guy who kept her locked up in a basement for you know a week or however long it was and killed two people in front of her and ate them. It doesn't really work. I think that to the extent that it does, it's basically all because of just the work of Donnie Taylor-Joy and, and James McAvoy, who play very well off of each other. And I think she really brings that. He goes big for a lot of this movie, and that's good for the characters. Thing, but she brings that sort of the softer and the, the smaller sides of his acting, and I think that it really works. And just on a, a superficial level, she's got those great big brown eyes, and he's uh-huh. got those great big blue eyes, and they play well off of each other. That's kind of more of a superficial level. That's what I think. 
Wow, good point about that. The only time he doesn't go big is in his interactions with her. That's a great observation. So we're 45 minutes in, and we finally get a glimpse of the title character. Remember, guys? <laughs> Played once again by Sam Jackson. She's telling him while he's in a drug stupor that he, she has installed cameras on every single floor and that everywhere he goes, he will be watched and that they're going to conduct a corrective procedure on him. Guys, we don't get too much of Sam Jackson here, but how do we like him in this film? Uh, he's not as good as he is in Unbreakable, because that's just a great performance in Unbreakable, and he's got a lot more to do there. Uh, and he, his character is sort of comparatively one note here in a lot of ways, because he's just kind of the evil mastermind when he's not a vegetable. But I, I'm on the record as just being uh, such a fan of Sam Jackson. I think he, he's always bringing it, even though sometimes, a lot of times, they don't give him anything in movies to do. I think a lot of times they just want him to show up and be Sam Jackson. But I think he always is he's just such a compelling and and such a, a committed performer in a lot of ways. And I think that he is here. I just don't think that what he does is as good as it is in Unbreakable. I like that you can see the internal machinations working when he's not saying anything. But I think the way Glass is written in this movie, it's like elementary. Like he's nowhere near as interesting a character as he was in the first one. Yeah. And part of that is that in the first, in Unbreakable, he's playing a character who is, in the process of going from this one type of guy, this strange, sort of somewhat delusional, obsessive sort of guy who can mingle in society to an extent, but also has these flaws and weaknesses and, and these uh, his own areas of expertise and everything. And then he makes, by the end of that film, the, the complete transition to just kind of mad supervillain. He's making the choice to make that transformation from a, a complex character into kind of a caricature. That's sort of a choice his character is making. That's sort of what that film is about, is this guy who intentionally makes himself into both a lesser and a greater version of himself. Lesser in that he's less complex, but greater in that he's an epic supervillain in his own mind and ever. In this movie, since he's already made that transition, he has a lot less to play, and it is it is less compelling because he just kind of has to be the supervillain mastermind type guy who's got always one step ahead of everybody else. To see him do his stuff is just kind of uh, entertaining. And I... I and, you're right that when you see him, when he when they think he's just kind of a vegetable, you see you do see the gears turning in his head because I think Jackson can't help but bring that kind of. You can see that. I don't think he could ever play somebody who was just who was just sort of dead behind the eyes. He's, he's got he's too much, he's got too much fire in him. Glass gets out and then is pushed back to his room. Doctor Staples. She does one final evaluation where she gets all three of our I guess superhuman and as Mike pointed out, mastermind characters in the same room. Now this is a scene taken straight from the trailer. Kevin has a mini flashback to his mom being mean to him. David has a flashback to almost drowning in a school pool. And Dr. Staple says there is MRI evidence that David was hurt in the train accident. And she compares David to a very successful magician. What do you guys feel about this whole scene? Like I said, this was in the trailer. I remember, Matt, you said that the trailer didn't really get you excited. I remember seeing these guys in this pink room and I actually got pretty excited for it. Once I saw it, I thought this scene was actually pretty decent. It goes on for a long time, which is, it's weird how much of this movie, which is very much promoted as kind of a action, I mean, even with the caveat that of, the, of the budget and everything, it's very much promoted as a kind of action, sort of blockbuster superhero type thing, just a January or February release, wherever it was, instead of a summer release. But much of this film is literally just people in rooms talking, which is, you know, fine, but that sort of, I think, shows sort of more of what... Shyamalan is kind of interested in, in, in when he's telling the story. It's, it's a lot less about sort of the heroics of it than it is about sort of these characters questioning their place 
in the world and sort of musing on what their place in the world is. But I don't think that dramatically that ends up being super compelling because of the way that the characters are kind of, I don't know, I think maybe it's because they're all being gaslit and they're all being sort of tricked by the Sarah Paulson character into believing something that the audience knows is not true. And because of that, there's like a mystery, really, because we sort of know that what she's telling them is bullshit. Even if we don't understand why, we know what we saw. We know that they have superpowers or are super evil. And, and so I think that that ends up being kind of a, a little bit underwhelming. I thought there'd be more conversations they would have amongst themselves, not just in this straight talk only in this room sessions. <laughs> I thought there'd be more, they'd have more to do, at least intermingling. They do eventually, but it feels like too little too late. Once Mr. Glass finally breaks out of his catatonic state that he's purposefully perpetuating. Well, and this movie's very much about how society or how certain elements of society want to keep certain people apart. You know, it's very much about how people are, are told to believe that they're not extraordinary. There's nothing extraordinary in the world that they certainly are not anything other than just a cog in, in kind of the system and to not connect with the other people who might also feel the same way. And so some of that is going on, I think, where the characters are intentionally kind of separated. Now, but then you go, well, do you want them to be together? Do you, do you really want the overseer and the horde and Mr. Glass? Do you really need them all in the same place for the betterment of society? It's probably not. Not, but that's sort of kind of argument that the end of the movie kind of makes. Not really. I mean, I don't know. It's kind of ambiguous. So we'll get to that. We'll get. To that. There's a there's a lot going on in this movie. I so think. So much. But, oh yeah, I could write a whole dissertation about this movie. <laughs> it wouldn't be an assessment of brilliance, but it'd be a very long piece. I will say that I might actually write it eventually. Oh boy! Now we get the act of randomness that shows up in every single M Night movie that we've covered. Casey and Joey find themselves in a comic book store where Joey finds stuff on Kevin Crumb. <laughs> okay. I bit my lip to the point of bleeding. So apparently Shyamalan has also never watched Heroes. Hey, because... all, all the, he's all the better for it. Let me, let me tell you. <laughs> Someone who wasted too much of my life on that show. <laughs> that show really fell off the cliff on episode, I don't know, two. But... That was a sort of deconstructionist take as well, but it also treated superheroes as prophetic. But it's fucking dumb here, because how did her story get published, and how the fuck did she not sue them in court for taking my real-life story verbatim? There's no 20% changes to avoid infringement. It's fucking stupid. It is so The dumb. next film in the series. <laughs> Courtroom drama it's, from it's even Sarah Paulson is Marsha Clark. There you the go. Prosecutor. God damn it. But yeah, it, it's even dumber though because she literally holds up the comic and says, "How can you explain this?" No answer. Ugh. It's wild. It's uh, it's uh, it's it's. I, I don't think you're meant to read it too literally, but it it, it raises too many questions. It's pretty silly. Yeah, there there would have been a way to convey some of these ideas without doing it in, in quite such a literal fashion. Well, it's so literal that when Joey's walking out, he gets up and it's the hero section is in green and then the villain section's in purple. He goes so fucking literal here. Oh, man. I felt bashed over the head with this comic book shit by the time this movie was over. It was insane how far Shyamalan went with it. We then have a guard come in and pretty much threaten Glass with his flashlight before Glass does some research of his own on Kevin. Shyamalan's building to something here. What? 
I don't know. As you said, Mike, this has been built up as, for lack of a better term, I mean, I, since I just saw it, Kong versus Godzilla, right? I mean, these are the three people who are going to be interconnecting. But at this point, Shyamalan is doing what he always does. He's lingering on them. We're dwelling on them. We're going inside their heads. We're, we're getting a lot of pathos going on here. And, you know, this is not the Shyamalan I was hoping to see. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I think that's kind of the, his intention, though, a little bit. is. I guess I should just bring it up now. Throughout the whole movie, there's this constant thing of the Osaka Tower opening up oh, to yeah. Philadelphia's greatest marvel. Everyone will love the Osaka Tower. Osaka Towers. And it's like you're building up to this, and they talk about the great showdown at the Osaka Tower. It's going to be a showdown at the Osaka Tower. It never shows up. And then at the end of the movie, there's that news report like, yep, Osaka Tower open. Nothing notable or exciting or happened that would be the events in a superhero film. you know. And it's like... That's there because he's deliberately fucking with your expectations in terms of there's what we expect going into the film, not just as a sequel to Unbreakable and Split, but also in terms of like what we expect in a superhero movie or what we expect in an action movie, what we expect in a, a blockbuster. We expect the hero and the villain to have their final clash and it will be amazing and spectacular and we'll watch the great display of heroics and everything like that. And throughout this movie, what he's doing is, I think, very intentional, which is that he's taking your expectations, and he's not delivering on what you want. And I think that disappointed a lot of people. I know it disappointed me, because when I saw this film, I was underwhelmed. I like parts of it, but a lot of it underwhelmed me, particularly the ending. And uh, that's what I'm talking about the first time I saw it. And I think that I'm going to make a very – I mean, I, I've made a lot of comparisons over time on this podcast, c comparing Shyamalan to things that are probably better than Shyamalan. Now, when I say this, I'm not – what I'm about to say, I'm not saying that it's on the level of what I'm comparing it to, but what I'm saying is I think the – the goal is kind of similar to what the Coen brothers were doing in No Country for Old Men and what Cormac McCarthy were doing in No Country for Old Men. Where they take this kind of genre. We think we know kind of what we expect. We want to show the hero and the villain. We want to see our kind of expectations in a sense, but instead he deprives you of that. You don't see a great showdown between the Horde and Bruce here. You see Bruce Willis drown in a fucking puddle. Part of that might just be budget. I'm sure that's part of it. But I also think that a lot of that is, is deliberately intentional. That's why he talks about all this Osaka Tower thing keeps being set up. There's no reason to bring that up unless and, and then not pay it off unless that's intentionally what you're doing. And I think that that's kind of what he's doing here is he's taking some of the expectations out from the form of the genre. Now, whether or not that that is too positive or effective end in, in this case is, is a whole other question. But I think that what he's attempting to do is interesting. But unfortunately, once again, Shyamalan is pulling stuff out of his ass where he's like, they call it the showdown. I'm like, that's not just superheroes. That's any fucking action-driven narrative. That's not exclusive to the superhero genre. And also, you're right, maybe tampering with expectations and not getting what you want. But it's just one of those things to where it's not the fact that the movie didn't deliver on what, you know, a superhero climax does, not to jump too far ahead, but it's the fact that he's setting up tropes that are not tropes exclusive to superheroes. Hmm. And that's my issue. So we see a guard check up on glass, and it isn't until Sam Jackson takes a shard of glass and slices this guy's throat that things finally start picking up. By the way, I do love the way he says his first name, Mr. Last name, Glass, on his way out of the room. It seemed kind of Saw-like to me. When Jigsaw would walk out of a room, this is the kind of shit he would do And then before he would pull that sliding door shut. I don't know. It was very arch-villain-like, and this is 
Finally, Sam Jackson's acting the way I was hoping Sam Jackson would be acting for the first hour or so of this movie. I'm finally getting that. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, that's the kind of line that you get to 99 actors, and they probably couldn't pull it off because it's so kind of like arch and kind of cheesy. You get to Jackson, he can pull it off because he just is such a gifted performer in terms of those lines. Like In terms of performance, because his performances are not always realistic or naturalistic. Sometimes they are, but a lot of times he's giving characters that are not naturalistic and are giving very cornball kind of lines, but he makes it work by, I guess, kind of leaning into it, but also just by having the kind of natural charisma. And I think he, he probably is somebody who looks at a script a lot of the times before he goes into the film and figures out, like, what's the most interesting way I can say this? What's the way I can say this that's not going to bore them? And I think that's what he did here. I do like the interactions with Jackson and uh, McAvoy here when Glass is asking Kevin if he's ready for battle and that things are going to pick up. Again, once Sam Jackson's finally getting out of his fake stupor, this is when I'm kind of digging the film. Beast is on the wall, comes down, and this is when Elijah tells him to go to the tallest building in the city and David will follow. And as Elijah points out, this is when the comics have the two bad guys go against the hero. And so, Matt, I'm guessing that this is what you're really taking offense to, right? I'm taking offense to 99% of this movie, so <laughs> so why, why exclusively attack this one snippet? But also, one thing I haven't touched on, the Beast has lost all of his menace. He's on screen way too long. The longer he's there, the less I buy it. And he yeah, talks too much, too. He's a fucking jabbermouth in this. Yeah, less would be more. I agree. By the way, if, you, if you're hating it now, wait till I get to the Lady in the Water reference later, which there is a Lady in the Water reference later on in this film. I don't know if Wait, you guys... there is? I've yeah. missed that. I'll point it out when we get to it. We cut to David and Elijah talking through a microphone to David, telling him to head out to the highest building. Kevin then does his reverse bear hug move to break this guard's bones. This is something we saw in Split. He's reenacting it here. David suits up, for lack of a better word. <laughs> Meanwhile, Joey, Casey, and Elijah's mom, they're all being told by Dr. Staple that comic books are not valid history. So they're about to be witnesses to the climactic showdown. Kevin, meanwhile, he attacks a car with guards in it and then makes his way out and takes two hostages and throws them in a van. This is when McAvoy does a changing of voices right before our eyes. And again, I think he's freaking great. I'm guessing you guys are disagreeing. No, I think he's pretty great. I, my issues with him in the movie are, are really not anything to do with It's just sort of, I think, that the material he's given here is, is just weaker. And the construction of the character is weaker because in Split, it, it's so much based around balancing his character off of the character of the other characters and, and making sure that he has a menacing, unpredictable quality in every scene. Here, because he's being balanced off with a bunch of other big characters, with people who have superpowers and stuff like that, then... He gets a little bit lost in it, and they, they rely a little too much on the Beast. Now, part of that is just that he has to make the transition from the, again, it's, it's a little bit like Sam Jackson's character in Unbreakable, where he deliberately goes from a more complex person to a less complex person by choice. That's kind of what's going on, where he's suppressing all of his different personalities in favor of just one monomaniacal monster, and that's less interesting. So... The reliance on the beast in the later parts of this film is too much, and it just it, they should have followed more of the Jaws rule of just like less is more. Like if you just see little bits of it, then it's scary. But if you see it all the time, then it it loses some of its power. Or keep them in the shadows more. Yeah, like they did in the last film for the most part. Yeah, like think about how scary he was in like the uh -huh. ending of Split, like when he's tearing the bars and he's getting the shots fired at him and he's like crawling the wall and he's in darkness and he's got this fucked up look on his face like that was so good and if you're it doesn't work nearly as well 
So the beast attacks two guards in a scene that looks rather silly when he's throwing them against these, this car. <laughs> I don't know. That shot was pretty – that could have been redone. As Elijah looks up and sees a collection of main characters, including his mother, Casey and Joey, come down the stairs. We then get the showdown, I guess, David versus the beast. In the meantime, the character I care about most in this movie is just a dumbered-down sympathetic mess. She's trying to convince police that Kevin has DID and that they're going to get hurt as the Beast and David fight off the guards, and Kevin actually gnaws on one. Oh, do I hate what they do with Anya Taylor-Joy in this movie? (laughs) Jesus Christ. So David rescues the two girls that Kevin locked up, as Joseph then does some retroactive storytelling to say that Kevin's dad was also on the same train that David was on and started this mess. They set that up in Split. They did. I, he, I understand that. Where he goes that. to the train. Yeah, yeah, and he verifies that. I understand that. You know, it's just the fact that this character is saying that in order to get him to be less menacing, I guess, or get him to stop doing what he's doing. That's what kind of sure. gets my goat. Is this where we could talk about the timeline issues that this creates? Please do. Go for it, because I, I don't think I noticed all of them. All right. This breaks the timeline for Unbreakable, because 19 years ago would have been the incident. So that would put Kevin... And this is a laughable. We're told he's 27 years old, and McAvoy is 40. So that's part one. So that part lines up that his dad could have been on the same train. But the issue is that we're told that his father leaving is what causes his mother to be abusive, correct? Uh-huh. The problem is that, if you recall in Split, when he talks to the therapist, forgive me, I, I lost her name, she said, is that the point where you first emerged? He says, yes. The problem is that we're told he was three years old when the other personalities first started to emerge. Oh, wow. You're right. That doesn't that doesn't work. Yeah. So that doesn't make any fucking sense. And this would have been a smart way to explain the purpose of Pedwick, who is perpetually nine. And if you do the math, Kevin would have been nine when his father died. Yeah, you're right. That's a good point. This is literally the worst part of trying to build a universe when you don't think it out properly. Because his whole origin now is contradicted to tie everything together to make Mr. Glass the true architect of everything. See, that's weird. That's usually the thing I noticed, and I didn't I didn't pick up on that either times. But that's, that's usually – because usually timeline stuff always kind of jabs at me where I'm like, why and, why, and, why, why, why was Don Draper in the Korean War and not in World War II? He <laughs> would have been old enough to fight in World War II. This doesn't make any sense. But he even says in Split, like, his mother had really malevolent ways for punishing a three-year-old. So there, there's no way – that you can get around that. He had to have been three when his father died. And we're also told he's been working at the zoo for like a decade. So, like, oh my god, this, this fucking movie. Like I said, the whole dissertation about how this movie does not work. Yeah, that's a plot hole that is pretty glaring the more you think about it. The fact that M. Night, who, yeah, he's ego-driven, but he comes off as kind of a smart guy when I see him interviewed. When stuff like this gets through and he puts this stuff on screen, when you know it's his vision and his vision only and nobody's compromising it at all and he's not making changes to please any financers because he is the financer, it's fucking inexcusable. Glass is taking great joy in the fact that he created both the creatures and the superheroes, proving that he's a mastermind. Kevin then takes hold of Glass, breaking bones in him by grabbing him, and then grabs David underwater, choking him. And here's where we get the Lady in the Water reference, boys. The crater the water from the tank runs into is the same exact form as the pool in Lady in the Water. What do you mean? Like it's the same shape? Yes, same exact shape. Oh, you've got to be fucking kidding. Nope, that is true. (laughs) I did not notice that. 
the one that David drowns in. Yep. <laughs> they should have made a fourth movie where Paul Giamatti shows up. <laughs> he should have been revealed to be the mastermind of this organization that Sarah Paulson works for. That would have been good. Well, the real mastermind would have been fucking Shyamalan, the author, whatever. Like, in the, the, <laughs> where he yeah. writes the book that foretells the future of humanity, whatever. Like, he should be there at the end with Sarah Paulson. Like, they should be, like, sitting in, like, a shadowy, smoke-filled room, and he's like, finally, like, my plan's coming to fruition. And the craziest thing about this, the craziest thing about this movie, one of your main characters being drowned in a puddle is not the dumbest thing in the movie. <laughs> And now I'm sure. What do you think is the dumbest thing in the movie? Are we going to get the, to that? Or? I think it's the plot hole. I, plot I just, hole? It's got to be. Or just water being kryptonite in general. That's probably the dumbest part to me. He thinks that Shyamalan got a kick out of forcing Bruce Willis to be submerged in water or anything like that. Do you think that was there, that there was any element of yanking out of this one, Bruce? Because you could see him. That is him in some of those shots. Now, I'm sure he did as much of a double as possible as he could in the, the parts with the hoods over his head and stuff like that. But you got to figure this is maybe the last time Bruce Willis will ever allow himself to be covered in water for any, any sort of acting role or anything. Yeah, I'm pretty sure yeah. a lot of directors looked at that as cathartic, <laughs> seeing yeah, Bruce Willis yeah, get yeah. drowned like that. <laughs> well, it's like he did a couple of years ago, Bruce Willis did um, Misery on Broadway, the Stephen King. Really? Like, you know, the James Bond. Yeah, he did Misery. Oh, it was supposed to be terrible. It was. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, got yeah. Awful reviews. It was him and Laurie Metcalf. Everyone was like, Laurie Metcalf's doing really well. Bruce Willis is not even trying up on there and this is a role where he spends the entire thing in a bed so like that really is telling you how little he's bringing to this like how how little energy he has that he all he has to do is be in a bed the entire show he's laying in bed and they're still like yeah but he's not even really trying it it, it went from you know zero to yippee kai break my ankle (laughs) so laurie metcalf played annie wilkes huh yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was supposed to be pretty good, but it wow. was just he apparently was just such an energy suck that it just like <laughs> Casey shows back up, remember her? And says she needs to talk to Kevin Wendell Crumb and ask him to stay in the light with her. When he agrees, he gets shot. Meanwhile, David is really weak and is getting drowned in a puddle by one of the guards. He takes Staples' hand, only to see that she's been sent here. This death scene with Kevin. It's like the Deadpool two death scene. Without the irony. Explain this to me. I haven't seen it. All right. So Deadpool 2 ends with a scene where he pretends to die, and he's saying, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I love you. And Dorothy and Toto, you were there, too. It's very long and drawn out, but it's ironic because it's a parody. Here, it's done with so much sincerity that it's laughable, where he just won't fucking die. (laughs) Last tells his mom that this is an origin story. Dennis goes through all his personalities with Casey before dying. She tells him that she's his friend until the very end and then kisses him after he dies. Fuck this. I'm glad I'm not the only one who took offense to that. It's, it's repulsive. It's surprisingly tasteless. It, very much so. It feels fanfic You know what I mean? Yeah. It feels kind of like, great way of putting like it. how in fanfic people will use the connections between characters that are like kind of emotional and they'll crank them up and they'll sort of overblow them and forget all the things that are dangerous or disgusting or bad about the character to just have the sympathetic parts of them interact with each other. It's like your Adam Driver, Daisy Ridley, kind of shipper type people, your your Ray uh-huh. Lowe's or whoever. You get that kind of vibe to it. And again, it's written by the guy who created the characters. Very odd. Yeah, this movie feels like someone else directed it. Yeah. Well, 
Or at least, not directed, this feels like one of those things where the original creator leaves and you bring in someone new to write the script. Yeah, um, a little bit, know, yeah. You know the characters, but they don't know the motives and they don't know the character, like, inner workings. Yeah, it is weird because it is so much clearly his film. Like, it is so clearly Shyamalan being Shyamalan, making a Shyamalan movie that's obsessed with other Shyamalan movies. It is so clearly, like, he's the guy, he's the guy writing it, he's the guy behind the camera. And yet, you're right, at the same time, it does feel at parts like he almost misunderstood his own movies. It's a weird movie. I don't know, it's such a strange kind of film. And I think that this conversation, much like the film, has been kind of all over the map in terms of, like, what we're focusing on in a given moment and, like, what what is the issue with the movie or what is working about it or anything like that like this is going to be an odd one to kind of at least for me i don't know i can't speak for you guys but this is going to be an odd one to kind of put a number on i think because it's four movies in one joseph finds his dead father as staple comes to glass to tell him that there can't be god's name among us this character of staple i love sarah paulson i really do but this character just bores and confuses the fuck out of me as you guys have said she seems to be she's been given direction that I don't think she agrees with. I don't think she's got her heart in this character. And she's reading these lines, not feeling them. Yeah. Well, it's an odd character. We don't know exactly what's motivating her until the very end. She can't give that away too much. And yet that kind of leads to a character that doesn't make a lot of sense. Correct. Yeah. Glass tells his younger mom <laughs> that he uh, he wasn't a mistake, as she calls him spectacular. Staple speaks at a function and says that maintaining balance and keeping order is her most important order of business. She then walks into a comic book store and hears that the mastermind is so smart, he never lets his real plan be known. And why is she in this goddamn comic book store? <laughs> this movie could have ended 10 minutes before this. No, I don't know, though. I mean, in theory, yes, but I felt that way the first time I saw it. But this time around, I think that this kind of epilogue part is if this is out of the movie then the whole movie none of the movie makes sense now you could say even with it the whole movie doesn't make sense and i would say that's kind of fair but this time around i had a greater appreciation for the ending because it's such a um this is another weird comparison but like you know how people back in the day especially complained about how the return of the king had so many endings uh-huh. and they're like they destroy the ring and then it just keeps going on and on and on i always thought that was a weird criticism because my take was that last ending stretch of that movie it's not just wrapping up that movie it's wrapping up three movies in one and this movie's kind of doing the same thing and it's a lot less elegant it's clearly a lot less planned i don't think that when in 1999 or whatever, when M. Night Shyamalan was writing Unbreakable, he was thinking, all right, so, and then 20 years from now, someone who will not, who's not been born yet, Sam Jackson's mother, who I've cast to be young, but it will be aged up, will be sitting in a train station and will all come together. Obviously, there's less of a planning, there's less of a structure there, but this epilogue that we get into, I think that that's kind of the culmination thematically of all of what's been building up in these past three movies, and, and I think that it feels anticlimactic, but it's thematically necessary for what he's trying to say. I was like, I didn't like it the first time I saw it. The first time I saw it, okay. I came out and I was like, oh, that, right. that was well, bad. Yeah, this is my second time seeing it, and I still feel the same way. Uh, I haven't gotten to that line of thought yet, but we see flashbacks and Ellen verifying that all security tapes have been erased. She hears the security feed has been streamed to a private site. This is when Ellen says Glass went through the basement tunnels and he never planned to go to the building. This was a suicide mission, according to her, as she gave him all the cameras he needed. She screams in the hallway as she seems to have failed. Okay, so what I think all three of these films end up kind of being about, and you could say that this is maybe not totally an organic outgrowth of the first 
two movies, but I do think the elements are there now, having seen them all and having viewed them as part of a greater whole. What I think all three of these films are about is the fact that at least some people, and you could argue even that it that he's kind of arguing that it's everybody, has extraordinary elements to them. And that the world, as it is constructed, is meant to have people deny that. It's meant to have people doubt themselves. It's meant to have people doubt others. It's meant to have people feel disconnected and apathetic and unable to affect things. And what happens is that over the course of these films, Garrett, what was what did you say the name of the trilogy that he called it was? East Rail 777 Trilogy. Right. The fact that he's calling it that is, to me, what's telling, because what he's saying is that the most important event in this universe that he's created was this tragedy where all these people died. And because of that, people came away traumatized from it. The, pe- the people who survived and the people whose families lost somebody there. So that is mm-hmm. James McAvoy and it's Bruce Willis both. And these are people who, because of their trauma, and this is what Split is about, these are people who, because of their trauma, they see the world in a certain different way than a lot of other people did. And that goes to Casey as well, even though she's not someone who has any kind of super abilities. And it's when that happens that through their own pain and through their own suffering, they come to realize something about themselves. And in the third film, they come to realize something about everybody. And that's when the message goes out. And that's why at the end we see these three non-powered characters, these three totally human people who have all lost somebody. They've all lost someone who was so important to them. We see them there in this train station where it all began, where this, you know, because it's the train that was ca- that caused the train crash that caused all this. And here they are at this train station. This is where it all ends. And they look around and they realize that every single person in there is part of this message that they send out. And they realize that everybody out there has that kind of connection, that there, there's something about them that is uh, extraordinary, at least in, in, in their background, if not in their ability. And the conclusion of that is that everybody is essentially like that, because everybody that's everybody we're seeing. Now, maybe it's not everybody in the world, it's everybody we're seeing. They're all like that, and it's the ultimate culmination, it's this ultimate kind of optimistic culmination of this very dark and somber kind of trilogy, is that throughout all of this pain, you can still find that human connection, and you can still overcome the structures that are trying to keep people disconnected. And you can have that human connection. You can have that kind of community and that communion. And um, there's something that I think is so sincere about that. I don't think it's totally organic. Like, I don't think that this completely all works and all fits together. But I think having seen all three of them now for – having seen all three of them now multiple times – and looking back on it, I can see these connections there that I didn't see the first time. And I can see the continuity there that I didn't see the first time. And for me, I found this ending to be a lot more emotionally affecting and a lot more thematically sound than I did the first time I saw it uh, two years ago. That is quite a wrap-up because one of my notes was, why would these three people be here after what they just witnessed? But I didn't put it together. This is where it all started. Didn't even think about that. It's a great dissertation there, Mike. Here's my two cents. Issue one, the double entendre of the title, breaking the glass ceiling of the world, finding out about superheroes. Oh, my God. I've seen wrestlers get hit with steel chairs that are more (laughs) subtle than that. And B, I would have more sympathy with these three being the people that are left behind if one wasn't a love-struck retroactive moron and the other wasn't an unsympathetic monster 
in Mr. Glass's mother. She's the most insane person in this entire trilogy. So, oh, God, just, I don't think anything about this ending works. Is it sequel bait? As sequel bait, it fails, and as finality, it leaves me asking questions about this entire secret society and how stuck at their jobs. Before I wrap it up, I do want to say I found this to be one of the most creative sets of end credits I've ever seen, or at least have sets of end credits I've seen in a long time, where we have scenes from all three movies being reflected on glass as the credits moved up. I thought that was kind of cool, actually. All I right. was glad the credits started, so I didn't see them. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this is before the big wrap-up and before we get the movie that we're leading up to, this is the most curious I've been this entire series. Scale of 1 to 10, what do we give Glass? Matt, you go ahead and go, sir. So I have not given high marks to a lot of Shyamalan films. And a lot of the movies that I've scored very low are the painful ones or the ones that are so outlandishly bad that you can't even quantify it, like Lady in the Water. Glass is an anomaly because... It's a bad Shyamalan movie, but it's the worst kind of Shyamalan bad because it's boring as sin. The entire second act is following a couple of stupid orderlies and superfluous characters, all the legacy characters that are going to survive, building up to a climax that, yeah, it's misdirection, but also what we got is M. Night Shyamalan read Victor Hugo's The Hunchback of Notre Dame and said, oh yeah, I'm going to do that and just kill off everybody. But all three of them are laughable. David Dunn being drowned in a puddle, Kevin's unironic death scene, and the sound effect of Mr. Glass's arms breaking doesn't hold the weight that it did when he fell down those steps in Unbreakable. Everything's just a, a clusterfuck. And as I mentioned, the entire crux of this movie, like what it's trying to accomplish, I think it ultimately fails at. As a sequel to Split, it reduces those characters to kind of disastrous cardboard cutouts of what they used to be. I'm sure Garrett will touch on that in his final comments even further if he hasn't already. And as a sequel to Unbreakable, I was left wanting more. Tonally, it doesn't feel like it fits in that universe anymore, and unfortunately, Bruce Willis didn't. I don't feel he came to play. So I can't call this the worst Shyamalan film just because Lady of the Water exists. But much like Lady of the Water, this movie pissed me off with the way that he misunderstands comic books, how he talks about limited edition, as if that has something to do with a storyline. No, that's just the term that you use for a certain kind of print. There's the conversation about, did you know spandex superheroes were inspired by circus strongmen? It's like the hot dog scene in The Happening, where it just comes out of nowhere, and it's just mm. it, it borderline surreal. So this might be his worst script, to be perfectly honest. I'm seriously considering making that claim. But it's not his worst movie. But with that said, this might be... If I was ever to write a book, or, or finish writing a book, this would be a movie that I would classify as the ultimate be careful what you wish for kind of movie. You got it, but it's probably not what you wanted, and the foundation of this movie is made out of duct tape and chewing gum. So it is a 3 on 10 for me. Wow. 3 on 10 from Mr. Goudreau. Mike, you've been up and down this entire podcast, sir. You've been praising it. But at the same time, you've been kind of doing what me and Matt have done a lot, which is the great script. I'm very curious as to what your score is going to be. You said it's going to be hard to put a number on it. It's time, sir. What do you give this movie? You know, there's a lot of thoughts that are sort of bubbling up in terms of what's the takeaway? What's the final word that you have here? If I was on Siskel and Ebert and I had 30 seconds to make my case or whatever, what would I say? And it's hard to do. Over the past couple of weeks, as I've been ranking some of these movies, one thing that's been standing out in my mind is that I've kind of regretted the ranking that I gave to The Village. And what I mean by that is that The Village was a film that while I was watching it, 
I wasn't having a great time. And I think I ended up giving it like a 5 out of 10, I think. And in retrospect, I kind of regret that. I kind of wish I had given it something higher because it's been a while now since I, I watched The Village. And the parts that have stuck with me have not been the parts where I was bored or whatever when I was watching it. It's been ideas that have brought up. It's been certain images that were evocative. It's been certain aspects that I thought were unique that I, I wasn't necessarily appreciating as I'm watching it. And that creates an odd element where I'm like, well, should I have rated it higher? That's what sticks with me. With this film, I, this is the second time I've seen it, and it kind of improved for me. It, well, it both improved and, and was kind of lessened for me the second time I saw it, which seems contradictory, but it is what happened, in that I thought that thematically what it was doing was a lot bolder and a lot more interesting than I did before, while at the same time I saw a lot more kind of flaws and issues that had kind of blindsided me the first time. And I think that I'm going to give this I don't want to. I don't want to run too low, but at the same time, I have spent much of this time talking about things that you know. I'm gonna give it a seven. I'm gonna give it a seven out of ten, wow. and it's higher than I had expected. Yeah, it's higher than I had expected. But Matt, you talked about that this movie pisses you off. I realize nothing in this movie pisses me off, and that's not something I can say for the Shyamalan movies that I dislike. There's things that I can point to in this movie as being flawed or even bad, but nothing about this movie pisses me off. And I think that it's an interesting and thematically kind of bold film. That doesn't always succeed. It's a messy, strange film. And for me, that is a kind of a commendable thing in a lot of ways, even though it has a lot of weaknesses and, and a lot of flaws. So 7 out of 10. Wow. I got a 3 and I got a 7. The score I have written down here is smack dab in the middle of you two. You know, there are things about this movie I did like. I think there's this Shyamalan that I had mentioned in the beginning that was humbled and had things to prove. I think we saw a little bit of that when we set the story up. I think the middle section of this movie is a little tough to handle because tonally this movie's just all over the place. I don't know where the hell Ellen Staple is coming from. I have no idea what her drive is. Even by the end of this movie, even at the wrap-up when she's yelling in a hallway, I don't know why she's so angry. Mr. Glass was a character who the movie is based off of. I would like to have seen a little more Sam Jackson. Bruce Willis, my God. I'm glad you took your weekend off, sir, to do this commitment that you did for Shyamalan, but I am more on Matt's side on this where he doesn't seem like he wanted to be here. James McAvoy is a pure joy. I have so much fun watching him do his characters. Spectacle or not big or not he really proved himself in this movie yeah he did so in the x-men movies that we covered matt but here i really really enjoy him in this the one part of this movie that really pisses me off is what he does with anya taylor joy the stockholm syndrome associated with that character the way he does that in this movie is just it blows my mind how much he struck out with that God, I am right in the center. I'm just like, man, there are things I like. There are things I dislike. The finale, I agree with Mike in that the subverting of expectations is actually what works in that finale for me. We knew they weren't going to go to this huge building and have this huge climactic showdown like Kong and Godzilla did. But my God, I thought it was cool just seeing them fight and actually seeing what M. Night's whole view of the comic book genre is. So the things I like, I did like. The things I didn't like, I really didn't like. So I am smack dab in the middle. I want to go five on ten. I don't think it's nearly as good as Split. But at the same time, I don't think it's nearly as bad as Lady in the Water and some of the other Last Airbender. We reviewed some bad things here, folks. But it's not nearly as bad as the worst. So five out of ten from me. All right. At the time we record this, it is still scheduled. It is still set to be released in July. 
Next time we're going to get together is after all three of us have seen Old. Now, whether this will be when it's scheduled or whether it's going to be like Bond, where we're going to be going a year later, is tough to say in these times of not knowing what's going to happen with the schedule. Boys, we have seen one Super Bowl preview. What do you guys feel we're going to expect when we see Old? I'm going to expect moments of confusion. I'm probably going to expect stilted acting. I'm probably going to expect an Shyamalan cameo. And I'm expecting I'm going to sit there for the first 20 minutes going, how is he going to fuck this up? The ever optimist, that is Matthew Goudreau, ladies and gentlemen. Mike and Ari, you know, you have been up and down on the series. At the time we're recording this, I am just at the end of the Lady in the Water podcast that we recorded. My God, you were really down on that film. But other than that, you've been kind of praiseworthy of M. Night. This will be the only movie that all three of us have not seen. What are you expecting when we see old? My goal is to have no expectations. Not in terms of like low expectations, but my goal is really to come in with just nothing in mind or what I want out of it, and any kind of foreknowledge of it. Because I feel like all the ones in this series that I have not seen before watching them, I wish that I just had come in as a complete blank slate. And so that's what I'm going to try and do with this one. I have only seen the one Super Bowl preview and have not revisited it and am not going to rewatch it or any trailers that come up. And I'm going to see old. I'm going to go into the theater and I'll gladly, oh God, what if it's the first thing I see? Uh, I will go into that theater and I will buy some, a big giant bucket of fucking popcorn and I will say one for M. Night Shyamalan's old, please. Not in that order. I will probably buy the ticket before I get the popcorn. But anyway, <laughs> so I'm going to go in with no expectations and then I'm going to see old. All right. No expectations to the worst of expectations from Goudreau. I, once again, am dead center. I hope that this is the M. Night that I do like. I do hope that this is a guy who is focused on giving us a good story instead of feeding his ego. But I think this guy's ego gets in the way time after time after time. I didn't have high expectations of Glass, but I didn't walk out of there extremely satisfied the first time I saw this in theaters either. So walking in, I'm just hoping for a good time. And I'm just excited to get back in fucking theaters because, my God, it's been way too fucking long. All right, boys, whether this is in July, whether it's a year later, it's been fun going through these movies with you guys. Keep in mind, everybody, that we are going to do a ranking of these films after old is here and gone so keep that in mind mike thank you sir i appreciate you going through these m night movies with us scale of one to ten have you had a good time watching these movies uh my first impulse was to say a 10 just because i've enjoyed recording these but you guys did make me watch the last airbender and (laughs) (laughs) so like i can't i can't be too you know what i mean i gotta have some standards so i'm gonna say an eight All right, till next time when we get to old. This is not a podcast. This is the real world. Thank you, gentlemen. says hi. She says she's sorry for taking the bumblebee pendant. She just likes it a lot. The Binge Movie Aftertaste is produced by Garrett and Matt.
Joseph, did you load that gun? You won't get hurt. Elijah was wrong. There's a monster outside my room. Can I have a glass of water? Voice narration done by Adam. You, alone, will follow the road and leave Covington Woods. Edited by Garrett. Maybe people are setting off the plants? What are you saying? That guy was crazy. We have to save them. They're already dead. ships drop those things there's um there's lots of visual tension To whom am I speaking with now? Dr. Fletcher, it's Barry. Today is your coming out party. At least you know what to wear.
What? No. I like Kevin a lot in this, and I think that's a lot due to what McAvoy's bringing here. I think I'm going to sort of split the difference. I think that... Um, <laughs> split. Yeah, here you go. Hey, there you go. I'm going to glass the difference. Uh, <laughs> I think that... What? No. The funniest thing about this movie, watching it, and then watching Dark Phoenix, is like, oh, that's why Professor Xavier was hitting the gym in those ten years. <laughs> why, he, why he was what? I haven't seen Dark Phoenix. You have to explain this to me. Well, in Dark Phoenix, McAvoy's still built like he is here in Split. Ah, yes. He's not built like Patrick Stewart. I see what you're saying. No. Yes. You know, even in the previous movies where he played Xavier, he wasn't really muscular. Like, in fact, right, right, right. he looks like a heroin addict. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's just funny. It's like, oh, Xavier, well, he had to skip leg day, of course. And, you know, <laughs> he did everything else. What? No. Now, Sarah Paulson, I can't remember whether she'd won her Golden Globe and Emmy yet at this point. She had, right? She had, yeah. She, okay. For, for OJ? Yeah. yeah, that thing yeah. that you love and I hate. Yeah, that thing. Um, <laughs> um, I'm with you, Mike. Don't let don't, don't him steer you wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, I, I know true north. I know I am a compass. <laughs> That's such a trashy thing. All right. Um, <laughs> That's what makes it great. Okay. What? No. Like, he's nowhere near as interesting a character as he was in the first one. Yeah. Glass gets out. And, then and part pool. of that is oh. that in the... Okay, can you start that again, Mike? I'm sorry I stepped on you, so start that again. Yeah, well, I was saying, and part of that is that in the first... What? No. But much of this film is literally just people in rooms talking. <laughs> Excuse me. What? No. It seemed kind of Saw-like to me. Like when, when that, when the guy, um, when Saw, when the, uh, the villain saw? yeah, when Jigsaw would walk out of a room. What? No. And I think he, he probably is somebody who looks at a script a lot of the times before he goes into the film and figures out, like, what's the most interesting way I can say this? What's the way I can say this that's not going to bore them? And I think that's what he did here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt, anything to add to that? Nope. Just uh, just keep going. All right. What? No. By the way, if, you, if you're hating it now, wait till I get to the Lady in the Water reference later, which there is a Lady in the Water reference later on in this film. I don't know if Wait, you guys... there is? I yeah. That. I'll point it out when we get to it. I wish did they read, did they read from the cookbook? <laughs> I, I, I missed that part. Did Paul Giamatti drown in a puddle too? I, I barely remember that movie from my own puddle of rage. No, don't Paul worry. Giamatti does not drown. Very, very deliberately in that movie, he goes into the fucking pool and he's like there for minutes on end. It's like, damn. Paul Giamatti, greater than signed Bruce Willis, when it specifically comes to doing stuff underwater. Like, you know. <laughs> what? No. Kevin then does his reverse bear hug move to break this guard's bones. This is something we saw in Split. He's reenacting it here. Is it just me or is Kevin, as you said, Matt, more specifically Beast, just, again, real chatterbox in this, and I guess we just covered that, so skip that note. Um. <laughs> what? No. Mike, go back and listen to our show. We did a good Deadpool show, Deadpool Two show. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to confess something. I can't listen to podcasts of people that I know. Oh, like I, it's, 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 it makes me feel like I'm like a ghost. Like it makes me feel like I'm like like around my friends, but I can't. It's, it's like it's like when when Scrooge when Scrooge goes back into his memories and like 
the ghost tech to be like, they can't hear you, Ebenezer. It's like that, where I'm like listening to people I know, but I can't, I can't interject or anything like that. So <laughs> maybe awesome. one day I'll get over that, but until then. What? No. Staple speaks at a function. Uh, I'm sorry, I skipped something. Here we go. Glass tells us. What? No. But I didn't put it together. This is where it all started. So, um, wow. Didn't even think about that. It's a great dissertation there, Mike. Uh, Matt, how do you feel about this? I got to follow that. Fuck me. (laughs) (laughs) What? No. Here's my two cents. Although I have more like a quarter to spare, but I don't want to be here because we're coming up on two hours. Um, (laughs) What? No. You know, there are things about this movie I did like. I think there are signs. Boy. I I think there are... um, What? No. And what he does to her, making her the sympathetic... um, What's it? What's it called when the the captor sympathizes with her? Um, the Stock, captor, Stockholm syndrome. Yeah, the Stockholm syndrome associated with that character. Swing away, Meryl. Meryl. Swing away. You've been listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network at BingeMedia.net. Support the show by donating on Patreon at Patreon.com slash BingeMedia. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And don't forget... Shut up! I'm wasted. <laughs>